You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that some long-distance runners have their toenails permanently removed because of chronic bleeding and pain. The way they do it is they anesthetize the toe, remove the nail, and then they pour carbonic acid over the nail bed to prevent the toenail from growing back. So if you wanted to get this done and you lived in Nova Scotia, you could kill two birds with one stone by donating your toenails to a cancer research center, which is the Guinness World Record holder for having the largest collection of toenails. They've got about a quarter million. They're doing a crazy study looking for data on why Nova Scotia has the highest rate of cancer in Canada, and they're thinking maybe it's arsenic in the drinking water, and toenails can tell you how much arsenic you were exposed to in the last six to nine months. So, hey, if you're a long-distance runner and you don't like your toenails, there's a place for you to vacation. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Now, let's see. Also, as, we, as we're going here, I got to just tell you, today's guest is Joe DeSena. And this guy's an extreme endurance racer, a radical limit crusher. 
He made his fortune on Wall Street, packed up, and went off to sunny Vermont. And since then, he's competed in over 50 ultra events, including 12 Ironman events in just a year. And he created the Death Race in 2005. And a couple years ago, he started doing Spartan races. These are multiple-day physical and psychological challenge races, really to push people to the ultimate limits of performance. So this is a, an amazing guest to have on Bulletproof Executive Radio because, I mean, this is a guy who's about as superhuman as it gets. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now my head is so big, I won't be able to get back in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that happens, just uh, you know, run 100 miles or something, you'll be fine. There you go. Or rip my toenails off. There you go. Have you done it yet? I ha- I've lost a bunch of toenails running, but I... Uh, <laughs> I'd seem kind of weird for the, the people I did meet along the way that were taking them off permanently. Yeah, plus it would just look weird if you're barefoot. I don't know, it, it doesn't seem that attractive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Then again, big black toenails falling off. I've, I've had that problem doing some high-altitude mountaineering. Like I, I've got these, these giant size 16 feet. So when I buy the largest pair of mountaineering boots on the planet, I kind of fit. And I've even like heat stretched them and I've custom made crampons and all. And it's, yeah, just losing toenails sucks. I, I, I agree with you there. That is, that is a large foot. <laughs> Literally when I bought the crampons, they laughed at me and I had to get like steel from Germany and it had to laser cut it. Otherwise, if your crampons fail, you die, right? So I yeah, right. had to do that. It was, it was like the first $800 pair of crampons ever known to man, I think. But oh well. Wow. Now, what got you into all this crazy stuff, man? You know, you were one of those banker guys from New York, and and then all of a sudden now you're like, you know, killing it out there on these ultra endurance events. What caused this change? So, um, crazy story. So back uh, 13 years old, even before that, I started a business. Uh, the, the business back then was a swimming pool cleaning business. My, I grew up in Howard Beach, Queens, and um, it's organized crime was organized crime capital of the world. My neighbor was the head of the banana organized crime family. I didn't know it at the time. I just knew he was really nice to me. And um, he took me in under his wing and he, he had me clean his pool for $35 an hour. And then he gave me the head of the other families, five families, uh, pools to clean. And then that grew uh, pretty large. Before you know it, I had 750 accounts, most of them in, in organized crime. And... Um, <laughs> And so over a 10, 15-year period, <laughs> I ended up building this really large uh, swimming pool business, which became a construction business, and it was in- extremely physically intense. And, and the reason for that was um, in May, April, when, when the season would open, everybody had a son named Johnny or Jimmy or something that, that had a birthday party coming up, and the pool had to be clean, and the backyard had to be done, and the brickwork had to be done, so... You can imagine having 700 customers that all owned weapons, um, and if they weren't in jail, right, they needed the uh, the pool done immediately. And so I was working my butt off um, physically and mentally. I mean, owning a business is very difficult, as anybody listening that owns a business. And um, and so then from there, I was lucky. I ended up on Wall Street uh, thanks to one of those customers got me a, my first job. They saw how hard I worked and, and thought I would do better on Wall Street, and it was a great move. And um, But then I became sedentary. I started sitting at a desk, making money, didn't have to work as hard as I had with the construction and, and the swimming pools. And, um, and then I, I was lucky. I was in a stairwell in a building in Manhattan, and I was running up the stairs, and I ran into a good, really good-looking guy who happened to be on the cover of Men's Health. And uh, 
he was running stairs as well. And he started telling me about these things called adventure races. And this was like probably midnight, 97 ish, 96, 97. And, um, I'm a glutton for punishment, got excited and, and started signing up for these things. Before you knew it, I was, uh, doing the Iditarod by foot, you know, in, in, in January, 30 below weather. And, uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. It was a way for me to escape wall street and all the headaches associated with it and the crazy people. And, um, and so every time I would do a race, Nova Scotia, Alaska, Switzerland, you name it, I thought, could I live here? I need to be here because this feels really good wherever, wherever here was with nature. And um, ultimately ended up in Vermont, although close second was Charlevoix, uh, northern Quebec, which was awesome, but um, really uh, tough to get to and pretty, pretty desolate and probably never see my family if I went there. And so, so Vermont, uh, became the choice. And, um, and so here we are, we're in Vermont. Wow. Uh, similar story here. Yeah. I, I live up on Vancouver Island. I wanted to be around trees and, you know, nature and still do what I do, but you know, I, I don't want to live in a big city. I've done that in Silicon Valley for long enough that I'm just, I feel like my family will be happier. My kids will be happier. Like it's just a better deal to be in, in a place like that. So I got to ask you, did you ever find a body part in a pool filter? Because I'm still just thinking about that. Well, there were just a couple of times where I was asked to put a couple of things under the swimming pools as I was building them. Um, (laughs) But we won't talk about that here. (laughs) You have to have been asked that before. (laughs) I've got some crazy stories that we could talk about offline. Uh, That's probably the right place to talk about it, right? (laughs) You said something that it was actually the reason I wanted to uh, invite you on the show, just when it just caught my eye. And you said the Spartan race was intended to wake up the world and save humanity, which is kind of a big claim for a Spartan race. <laughs> what do we need saving from? So, um, and you probably talk about it on, on many of your uh, previous podcasts, but um, my big thing is... Um, We've been on the planet, let's, let's call it a million years, just for round numbers. It's only the last 200, 250 maybe, that we, we live the way we live. Um, climate-controlled houses, coffee on demand. Uh, we're basically living in bubble wrap. Yeah. Some of us, not the whole world. And so what was interesting to me, the reason that's relevant, is as I was building these businesses, especially the uh, construction and swimming pool business, is it intrigued me that foreigners – would outwork any American I could hire. They, if I, I was a maniac. I want to work 20 hours a day. And very few people could keep up with me, but the foreigners could outwork me. And, and that just for 12 years fascinated me. And I finally came to realize it's a frame of reference issue, right? These guys and girls from, from these countries that don't live in that bubble wrap life, that don't have food as readily as we do, that, that have um, maybe... In some cases, I mean, you look at Bosnia, they burn their, the wood in their roof to heat the house until they have no roof. And so, um, so that just intrigued me. These were tough, gritty people that were just happy all the time to be alive, have water and food and a job. And so um, Spartan Race is a minor attempt to get us, the bubble wrap society, to get a taste of what that feels like, get out of our comfort zone, get in the mud, act like a human, face some obstacles, and maybe hopefully change our frame of reference. I uh, 
I, I really resonate with that. One of the the most probably one of the most amazing top ten things I, I've seen was when I went to Cambodia about 10 years ago and a whole society has just been ravaged by Khmer Rouge and you know, people seeing their, their parents killed, you know, just, just the most traumatic things I can imagine. If you're lucky, you make a dollar a day, everyone's impoverished. These people are walking around singing songs, smiling and happy and genuinely on average, kinder and nicer and happier than someone you see on the streets in New York. And I, I was I just didn't even know that was possible when I saw this. And I, I've asked myself ever since, like, what what was the difference? And it sounds like you've kind of you're sort of saying, let's push some limits to the point where you see that whatever you have is so much more than it could be. Is that kind of the, the, the idea here? You just, just hit that yeah, wall? I mean, we got this, we got the book coming out, which I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on Spartan yeah. Up. And, and the whole concept with the book, because people, as you just asked, I don't understand how Spartan Race is supposed to change people. The book... The book explains the concept. One of them is that frame of reference that um, we just need to be ripped out of our comfort zone. I tell my kids all the time, when my, my kids are done with their wrestling practice at night, they walk into the kitchen. And if there's salad on the plate, which is nine out of 10 days, there's salad on the plate, <laughs> first thing they're going to eat, they hit the ground and are miserable. And they walk over to salad and I say the same thing every night. Tomorrow we're having rocks. We're going to heat up rocks, you're going to eat rocks, they're going to break your teeth, and they're going to ruin your stomach. And, right. okay. and the point is, like, we don't, we don't know how good we have it. Yeah. I, I was in a sweat lodge once uh, a while back, a traditional Indian thing, and, and there was a, a woman in there who was like, oh, I, I've hit rock bottom, and I, I, just, I just have to survive. And, and I don't know what kind of came over me, but I, I just looked at her, and I'm like, I'm like, I noticed you still have both of your legs. <laughs> she was nowhere near rock bottom, but like, you know, people just don't, they don't see where it is. They're just not able to do it. So oh, uh, you, ever, you ever see that honey badger video on the internet? Where, uh, oh, where, yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, he doesn't care, right? He's in, he's getting stung by bees. He's attacking king cobras. Right. He gets bit by venom. And so when I'm having a bad day and like that woman that you just described mm-hmm. in the swell, I think to myself, it's not as bad as the honey badger. I mean, he's getting bit by yeah. So what's the deal with the honey badger? So the honey badger, right, he, he, uh, he doesn't care. He, I, you know, I, I probably can't curse on this podcast, but um, trying, but trying it's to a really funny video. Sort of and that, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, but the honey badger is just a bad ass. Yeah. And um, he just gets it done no matter what gets in his way. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I say to myself, I say to my kids, me and Andy, who started Death Race together, joke to ourselves whenever we're having a tough time. Well, you know, Lewis and Clark had it pretty tough. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> three generations ago, <laughs> just three generations ago, like I said to somebody recently who said uh, they had a friend who had cancer and it was so terrible and certainly it was bad. I don't want to take anything away from anybody with cancer, but like in the old days, you get on your horse, you got the buggy with the family behind you. You try to make it from New York to California because you want to like change everybody's life. Grandma dies along the way. Your wife gives birth. Maybe a lion <laughs> attacks the family. Like, and no one pats you on the back when you get to California and says, oh my God, you had such a rough ride. It's just, that was a normal like trip. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. When you read some of those historical accounts, you're like, man, like everyone today is a wuss, right? Like every single one says, oh, my, my Facebook is down. But all right, so... Now, I'm going to probably piss a few people off, but uh, years ago, uh, someone close to me was doing uh, one of the 
you know, race to raise money for a, a, a disease of some sort. So they, they ended up having a bunch of mostly uh, overweight and still overweight at the end of, of the event kind of thing, uh, where a bunch of, of people who, who were probably more healthy than they were before they started, but kind of didn't really push themselves that hard, but you know, ostensibly raised some money for cancer or whatnot. So I see a lot of these kind of events used for fundraising where I know there's great community value and I support fundraising for medical research, but also I, I kind of question whether it was like I did it to say I did it or I, I did it versus like I, I got every ounce of energy out of me, like I pushed myself to a limit. How do you differentiate between the, I don't know, that style of event where we're all sort of just kind of loping through it to say we did it versus like I'm killing myself here? No, I, like I, I just had this conversation today with somebody. Um, there's no accomplishment if it's not hard. It doesn't yeah. count. And, um, and so people say, especially our board of directors and our investors with Spartan Race, like, can't we tone it down a little, Joe? <laughs> can't we, you know? And I say, well, we like the color run in many ways. We just believe in black, blue, and blood. <laughs> it's just a little different. Um, <laughs> um, because, because otherwise the metal doesn't mean anything. And, and that metal is so significant and life-changing only if it's hard. It's got to be hard. Yep. So that the hard is what makes it there. And, and really, if you want your brain to change, your brain doesn't change for easy. It never has. The only thing that makes it change is when it's too painful to not change. And that's a biological rule uh, for, for the most part. You can motivate yourself with positive reinforcement, um, but you know the tiger chasing you is a bigger motivation than the hamburger at the end of the run. And if you combine them, it probably works well. So um, I, I I agree with you on the value of, of that. But isn't there also like a, a level where you can push yourself too hard, you just get sick? Like how many people finish a Spartan race and then you know they have the flu and a cold for a month and they feel like crap? It's funny. It's funny. Um, we put on uh, separate from Spartan race. We have uh, Spartan's evil twin sister in Vermont here. We, we put on uh, a few races and one of them's a hundred mile snowshoe and. Um, I had one, one of the guys who works for Spartan come up here to attempt that race three years ago. And it was a snowstorm and it was brutal. And he was about 60 miles in and his girlfriend was here. And he said, I'm done. I can't, I can't take another step. I said, what do you mean you're done? She jumped in front of me. She said, he's done. He's, he's sick. He's not feeling well. And I said, well, is he pissing blood? He said, no. <laughs> I said, well, if he's not pissing blood, he, he can still go. When he starts pissing blood, let me know. But he'll, he'll get through it. And sure enough, he finished it. But... But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a level, and you don't want kidney failure. Yeah. You, your body, the body can go um, pretty far, a lot further than you think. One of the, in fact, a lot of the bulletproof techniques uh, that are, are really profoundly effective, you know, high-intensity interval training, sprint till you puke, right? That, that's basically short description of that. Even things like the, the sleep induction mat, you lay on a bed of longer-than-normal sharp spikes, and your body's like, holy crap, that really hurts. And you're like, shut up and lay there. And, and it's that shut up and lay there that when the body finally gives up, that's when the endorphins come. That's when the relaxation happens. And it's funny that basically laying on a bed of nails helps you sleep deeper later. But anything that tells the body like, no, I'm in charge and you're going to do what I damn well told you. When you do it enough times, it seems like you become master of yourself more. And when I look at Spartan races and death races, kind of the, the concept of self-mastery comes out of those. 
Um, is that is, is that what you mean by you know keeping yourself I from being asleep? Yeah, I, I I've had some of my best nights sleep on like a bed of rocks and boulders, <laughs> and, and thought to myself, this is so damn comfortable. And um, I used to think that I I haven't pushed myself hard enough until I can lay on some really sharp rocks, and it feels good. So um, so yeah, I I, I agree. I think um, I think taking yourself to that level where your muscles finally relax and give up and where you get to a place where I used to say, um, where you just want water, food, and shelter. That's a really nice place to be, right? All the other stuff that we live with and all these headaches and all these pressures are irrelevant when you get back to water, food, and shelter. So are you a masochist or a sadist? No, I mean, I'm a little bit of both. It depends (laughs) if I'm... (laughs) It depends. If I'm putting on, you know, the death race, this is going to sound terrible. I like to hurt people, but I like to hurt them in order to help them. I don't like to become friends with them because if I'm friends with them, it's hard then to, to torture them. But, but there's something really good that comes out of what I do to these people. And, you know, it might take them two or three years before they apologize for all the bad things they say about me or to me. But, um, but when they finally come around... I had the Olympic, uh, U.S. Olympic wrestling team come up here and train with me, and um, they hated me. These guys, <laughs> I, when, when they got off the plane in, um, this is funny, this is in the book, so I'm giving it away, but when they got off the plane in, in Rutland, Vermont, which is, let's say, 18 miles from here, uh, a car went and picked them up, and they were in khakis. You know, wrestlers are pretty professional people. They had loafers on and suitcases with little wheels and handles. And um, about five miles in, it occurred to me, why am I picking them up? These are Olympic wrestlers. I called the driver. I said, drop them off. Give them directions. Let them walk here. And, uh, and they walked 15 miles with their little wheels on their things and khakis and shoes and almost got run over a few times. But uh, it set the stage for what we were going to do that weekend, which was completely turn their lives upside down and show them that, yeah, you're pretty tough on the mat for the two or four or five minutes or whatever it is you're wrestling. But um, let me show you what 48 hours straight feels like because it's going to make your time on the mat that much easier. And, and it took a few years. One of those wrestlers won the world, called me, hadn't talked to me since he left here, didn't really like me, and said, I got to thank you. Um, I won the world and I, I attribute it to that weekend. So, so there's, in a lot of spiritual practices, there's the idea that you, know, you, have, to, you have to face death. You, know, you have to die a, a spiritual death or an ego death. But a lot of times, going back thousands of years, those practices were, oh, here's a knife and a loincloth and freezing temperature desert. Uh, we'll see you in a week, right? Kind of a similar general principle there. I mean, do people have, you know, do they have kind of a spiritual experience when they, they hit that wall and they realize that there's a wall and I can go over it? I mean, I, I had it. I've had, you know, 50 of them. And, um, and, and when you throw in some hallucinations in there, it's really, really spiritual, one year we had uh, the death race up here. We we had a start and end in the church, and um, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> awesome. Talk about spiritual experience. Awesome. We had the priests involved, and um, we lost one of the racers. And we're in the middle of this ceremony. Uh, lost as in, as in the racer died, right? No, no, he didn't okay. die. He died. <laughs> He's on the mountain. We're in the church. The storm going on outside is biblical, and. Um, he had taken off his boots and he was literally found talking to a rock. He was having a full-blown conversation <laughs> with a large rock. And, um, 
later we got him into the church, but, but, but biblical uh, experience and spiritual experience. So it happens, and it, I, I can't tell you how many thanks we get. Tens of thousands of thanks. You changed my life. So, so, so just, just seeing what you're made of is worth it. Oh, without a doubt. And, and I have to uh, be that terrible person to get people to go to that level because people don't want to go to that. They don't want to push themselves to that level. One of the, the things that, that I do with a, a few clients is I have some unusual electrical stimulation devices. And uh, I, I've done this with, you know, 60-year-old women. I'm like, no, I'm going to turn that up. And if they're getting full on muscle stimulation, I'm going to shut up until you swear at me. And they'll sit there and they make these faces and, and you know, their muscles are tensing. And, and finally, when, when you hear, you know, someone who could be my grandmother, you know, dropping F-bombs, I'm like, all right, you, we, <laughs> we, we hit that level for you. But it, it's that there's something about our biology. It's, it's not even up here. It's, it's you got to get the meat to hit its, its limit. And when something like that happens, that's when you get the BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's when the muscles grow, the nerves grow. But the change up here happens too. So I, I'm intrigued that you're doing this with these, you know, really extreme things. I mean, do you get kidney failure? Do you get people who like really get screwed up by doing this? I'm trying to think. We've had some very close calls, particularly with people that aren't the smartest in the bunch that like might be on Adderall or some some pills <laughs> that they don't tell us about. And so you can't get dehydrated when you're on pills, especially when you mix them. And um, and so we've had situations where we're, you know, 30 miles into the woods with no roads in or out and, and you get somebody that collapses, that's the situation. But as far as um, just pushing yourself, n- knock on wood, we've never, I've n- I mean, I've been, I had dysentery, giardia. Um, I lost 32 pounds in eight days during a race. I was dead. But you somehow finished the race and you drink some water and you go to a doctor and you come out of it. So you know what happened to the guy who ran the first marathon, right? He died. <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. <laughs> now, I, I don't know if you've, if you've read my stuff. I, I generally, like, I, I've seen some studies, uh, you know, endurance exercise may, like, long-term, like, ultra-marathon kind of stuff, may increase telomere length, which is a good thing, right? That's an anti-aging thing, one of the fundamental, like, five uh, theories of aging. So there's some benefits there, but there's a bunch of other ones that look at, you know, joints wearing out, adrenal fatigue, dysfunction, cortisol levels, baldness, testosterone. All of those move in the wrong direction when you do chronic long distance exercise. What's how much? Go ahead. How many studies have you done on like watching TV and sitting on the couch? Right. I mean, well, I I think we we have a study. I I think it's called Texas. Just there, kidding. There I have friends in Texas. I was just there. Just kidding. But I mean, we, we, we know two the opposite, of, right? Right. Two ends of the spectrum. And so yeah. um, I, I take ultra running over, over the couch any day and whatever comes along with it. I was in a car accident. I was thrown out the window at 85 miles an hour. My leg ripped out of my hip. They had to break my hip to put it back in. They told me they're going to have wow. to replace my hip. I can't walk again the whole nine yards. And um. I don't know. I've done a ton of Ironman since then. I've done a ton of ultras and um, nothing, everything's working fine. So I don't know. You got to do yoga. If you do some yoga, you'll be fine. <laughs> do you do yoga? I do yoga. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's too funny. I, I, I'm a little out of practice right now. I live kind of far from a yoga thing, but I, I've done a lot of advanced yoga and I still do pranayama. Uh, so it, it, it's interesting. So you, you bring that in. So you've got some flexibility, some breathing and I, 
I, I'm not uh, trying to be critical. I don't feel critical of what you're doing. I think it's actually pretty damn amazing what you're doing. I just wonder about like the the ultra endurance side of things versus the high intensity sprint side of things. Given the cognitive and life load on me right now, I don't think I have the time for the training and doing the long races because for me, like 15 minutes a week, I'm like, all right, I can sprint or I can lift heavy things and then maybe I'll get four hours of sleep and I'll do it again tomorrow. Well, not the lifting, but I'll just do the same day again. What do you say when, you know, the CEOs and, you know, the the non-professional athletes and, you know, Navy SEAL kind of guys, when, when they come to you and say, I want to do one of these races, but, you know, I'm, I'm flying a hundred times this year. Like what, what's your take on that? What do you mean when they say they're flying? Well, like literally, these are guys who like I, I work with guys who run like hedge funds and CEOs. Literally, oh, like oh, I'm, I'll it. be here, I'll be there. I've got jet lag. I've got you know twelve hours of meetings today. Then I'm going to exercise for an hour. Then I'm going to get on a plane for four hours. Then I'm going to like like people live this life. Yeah, you got to fit it in. I mean, I did it. I I was doing the long distance stuff while I was on Wall Street. I was flying literally. Uh, I would leave on a Friday or Thursday, go to South Africa, do an Ironman, and be back and work on Monday. And um, that's a lot of flying time. It sucks, but um, I don't know. Life, you got you to pack it all in. It beats, the, it beats the horse and carriage going across country yeah. and losing the grandma on the way, right? It does indeed. You got to fit it in. So if you're busy and you're an executive and you're spending a ton of time on airplanes, do burpees. I'll go in yeah. the back of the airplane. I'll be stretching out. I'll do some burpees in the airport. <laughs> People think I'm crazy, but whatever. Uh, yeah, I've done full on yoga in the airport waiting. Like, what the hell? You know, I'd, I'd rather be flexible when I sit. I haven't tried a burpee, though. It's not a bad idea in the airport. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm concerned about recovery because I, I have a few clients who exercise. You know, they, they do you know, marathons and whatnot on a regular basis. And a lot of them, when I look at their labs, like their cortisol is just through the roof. And it, it's like, it's not because of the exercise as much as it is the lack of recovery. Like, if, if you're going to you know, hit it hard every day, you're, you're going to want some sleep and some proper nutrition. And if you're not getting it, uh, I found at least in my own life uh, that if I wanted to exercise that intensity, that it took so much effort to recover adequately to just maintain homeostasis that I, I switched to the high intensity thing. But it, it's interesting because you're kicking ass, obviously. And I, I'm always intrigued by people who just are, are kicking ass doing high intensity or not even high intensity, but just long-term stuff. That's also at high intensity. So I, I want to know how you do it, man. <laughs> I, I, um, I, what I found, and I, I don't know if you've, you've studied this, is um, the better shape you're in, it it's, uh, gets progressively better. So in other words, uh, the recovery time takes longer if you're not in great shape. I, I, my best performances are back-to-back races. So if I did a 24-hour race this weekend and then the following weekend did an Ironman, my Ironman time was better. Wow. Uh, traditional theory would say you need the rest, you need – I remember, I don't know if you know Ian Adamson. Ian Adamson, mm-hmm. uh, amazing athlete. Uh, Discovery Channel did this um, test where they had him strapped with all kinds of wires and they were studying the body. And what they found was the body actually becomes more and more efficient. You get in better shape uh, with every passing hour of working out and uh, it's fight or flight. And so, um, yes, we all need rest. Yes, you need recovery time. But, um, but the better shape you're in it makes it that much easier. Uh, that that makes great sense. And when you kick ass the way you do, in fact, one of the effects we know happens from long distance ultra endurance things is you can get more mitochondrial efficiency. And I know very well that better mitochondria in your cells equals more efficient sleep, for instance. So your efficiency of recovery goes up when you're in better shape. I would buy that in a minute. 
You've said some other things, though, that, that one of them was really cool. You said the phrase, I can't, doesn't mean anything to me anymore, not because of my ego, but because I know anything is possible. So you're, you're bringing up like the effects of ego on performance there. So how do you how do you deal with your own ego when you know you're hitting your wall and when your body is saying no? Like, how do you overcome that? Like, what's the strategy? Well, I try to use my ego to get me through. Right. So what I like to do is um, publicly announce I'm going to do something. So it's <laughs> it's it's Sunday, and I don't know if I'm ready, but I want to raise some money for hospital care. So I'm saying, all right, Wednesday I'm leaving. I'm going to run 300 miles straight. I publicly commit. I send an email to everybody I know. I don't really want to run 300 miles straight. No one does, right? right? But I, but I use my ego to trap myself. And so at mile 70, I'm exhausted. At mile 140, I can't take another step. But I told everybody, and my ego now is the thing that's keeping me going. And uh, and so that's how I, I I use my ego. But but as far as knowing anything's possible, it's. It's being in those situations uh, where you're completely done. You can't take another step. You lay down. You want to just be dead. And uh, somehow you do another eight days. God, is there, know, it's so the transcendence of the ego. The ego says no, and you're like, I'm just going to do it. And that's the point where you, you realize that you had limits you didn't know about. You didn't even know. You just keep going somehow. It just keeps going until, I guess, uh, thankfully I haven't gotten to that place where you're dead, but... At some point, I guess you die. <laughs> Seems to happen to everyone that I've I've met, at least as far as I know. Well, do you do you have some kind of tech? I mean, do you use technology to keep your ego in check or to get yourself into a flow state? Like, is there any trick there, or is this just like pure on willpower? Yeah, I don't. I'm not a technology guy at all. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what my heart rate is. I don't want to know anything. I just uh, less is more. One step in front of the other. Small little goals. Really, really detailed paying attention to um, those tiny little decisions like, gee, I feel a hot spot in my foot. Let me take my shoes off. Let me adjust the situation even if I lose 20 minutes here because 30 miles from now, that could turn into a blister. If that turns into a blister, I'm walking funny. Walking funny turns into a hip problem, then I'm out of the race. Yeah. So really paying attention to those tiny little things. Do you know the book Fixing Your Feet? Is that a familiar thing for you? Uh, this is one, one of the first uh, first really serious books about ultra endurance running and foot care. And it, it's funny you just mentioned that because this guy looked at all these successful people who finished 100 mile plus races and the number one variable he could find was gaiters to keep dirt out of their shoes. So he focused all of his work on like, how do you just keep feet from falling apart? Um, I, I used a lot of those techniques when I did a lot of high altitude mountaineering. And it, it's kind of similar uh, for me, you know, I'm going to get to that rock up there and, and you just one foot in front of the other. And it's one of the things I enjoy most is like, it's, you know, you in a mountain and there's not enough air and what's going to happen next. And the answer is, well, either you freeze to death or you get down the other side. It's one of the two and there's not much of a choice about it. Um, yeah, there's freedom in that. One of the things only cause you brought up the toenails earlier and just mentioned, we mentioned feet, uh, that I found that might be useful for your listeners is, um, you don't even need gaiters. What you need to do is when you train, sprinkle some sand in your shoes. Don't wear socks. Um, <laughs> You're such a masochist. All right. Here's, here's this is awesome. <laughs> tighten them up a little more than you would normally. Mm-hmm. Make sure you run through every puddle you can find and um, get your feet used to. Listen, uh, Michael Phelps' coach used to purposely break his goggles completely screw up his flights, make his life miserable because <laughs> if that happens in the Olympics, he's got to be able to deal with it. 
And so I always made my feet deal with terrible situations during training, and it was a piece of cake in the race. It's funny. Uh, I've had the tenderest feet forever. Um, blisters, I, I blister really, really easily, and that's been just a bane for some of the things where you know I, I move a lot. And just walking barefoot on gravel has always been terribly uncomfortable. And it, you know, I do the mind over matter, but it just hurt like hell. And I finally started standing on on spikes. I have a sleep induction mat, which is basically a bunch of really sharp plastic spikes. And I stand on that thing every day for at least ten minutes. And you know, I can walk outside on gravel and everything else, but somehow rocks didn't do it. But sharp like nail things poking at the bottom of my feet, like I I'm so much happier now. And this is something I've been working on for like 10 plus years to just not have sore feet. So yeah, there's something to be sad for just beat the crap out of them and let them get stronger. Um, but I would, God, sand in my shoes. I think I would just like, not like that. So man, you're, you're a man's man from that perspective. Um, let's talk about flow state, right? Sometimes having physical pain puts you in a flow state. What was your first flow state experience? Like, what's it like for you? I would say it was uh, a race I did called the Yucatec in Canada. It was northern Quebec. It was um, four or five days into this thing. And, um, yeah, everything, everything had dropped off my shoulders. There was no more um, attachment to anything in, the real wor- you know, my, in our real world here with money and headaches and business. And that all went away. And um, I don't know. I just became this machine. And I'm um, hallucinating and all that, but just doing things I didn't, I, I didn't even know I had, was capable of. So you, uh, you felt a flow state there. What's it like if, if you go into flow state? So you're hallucinating, but uh, you know, I've, I've had uh, Stephen Kotler on to talk about you know, studying flow states and things like that. So different athletes from different disciplines enter it in a different way. But I mean, any other details? So like you're hallucinating, you're pushing yourself really hard and you went into this space, but tell me more about what, what's it like? For me, it's this ability to go beyond anything I ever did in training or any race before, and all of a sudden, uh, you're not running out of breath. Uh, your heart rate doesn't matter. Uh, I was just just moving, but I'm not talking about for ten minutes. This is for yeah. ten hours. <laughs> you're just uh, you don't need water. You don't need food. I'm seeing all kinds of crazy things, hallucinating all kinds of things. It's just an amazing place to be. It, I, you, by the way, crash at you, some point. You said you do crash at some point? Oh, yeah, I, I, you crash. You come down off that, and, um, and, and then you got to recover. But, but, um, but while you're in it, it's pretty awesome. So what do you do to recover after a race? You know, so, so you, you've been in a flow state. You, know, you, you push yourself really far. You hallucinated. You, know, you, you won. You, you achieved your goal. And then like, you're sore. You're hurting. Like, what was it pizza and beer, L-glutamine and egg yolks? Like, what do you do? You're going to, um, you're not going to like this one, but ice cold water. Uh, oh, no, I, I like that. When I, I do cold thermogenesis, I'll, I'll sit in ice water. It's one of those things to tell the body to shut up. I, I, I support that one. So you actually get in ice water? Ice water. Got to find it. I, I mean, we live in a cold place here, and we've got, I got a cold pond that somehow stays in the 40 degree temperature range all year. And um, yeah, it just it fixes things fast. Okay, so you sit in ice for how long? I might do a half hour, 40 minutes. Um, when I've done back-to-back events, I'll, uh, I'll do multiple ice baths. I could do uh, five, eight, ten of them for 20 minutes each, just, just out, back in, out, back in. 
Wow, that's pretty hardcore. So when you're when you're not just recovering from a race, do you normally like every week expose yourself to cold to keep your vagal tone, or how does that work? I like to take cold showers just to piss myself off. I um, it just wakes you up. I, I like to do anything that I don't like to do. Whatever I whatever my mind says, I don't feel like doing. I then force myself to do. That's a lot of discipline, but what what an amazing practice, right? I, I mean, Joe, that 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 works. In in my view of organization of the mind, you know that there's this operating system that controls the meat of your body. So it's your meat operating system that keeps the flesh alive, and it's it's kind of a bitch. Like it's a fearful thing, and it's just worried about dying. And it's so worried about dying compared to what actually kills you that like the challenge of being a human, not just a hype you know racing kind of thing, but whatever you're doing at at work or at home is pretty much telling that meat operating system to shut up. And when you make it uncomfortable on purpose, it, it's kind of like you know training a training a dog to not be afraid of a gunshot. Like it's naturally afraid, so somehow you train it. And it, it, there's something to that that just forcing yourself to do stuff you don't like just just to show yourself who's boss. I I greatly respect that. So uh, you probably take it to an extreme of anyone I've interviewed on the show, but I like it. That's awesome. Awesome for you. It sucks for me. <laughs> What do you do before you go on one of these races? So you, you got this kind of this hard edge bit of a you know masochistic edge where you're like, all right, I'm going to beat myself into submission. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to win. But like, do you like do you pre-fuel or are you like training yourself? Ah, screw it. I'm, it doesn't matter what I have before I race. I'm going to have to do it anyway. Like, do you pay attention there, or is, is that just kind of like not, a waste? And this all sounds uh, silly and stupid. A couple of things. One is subconsciously, I, I tend to get really tired before an event. Okay. And like nap, nap and sleep and just, it, 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 my body just must know we're going into war. And then secondly, I, I make the same mistake every single time. <laughs> I don't need me, I don't need me food. I don't need anything. I'll be fine. I do it every time. And, and, um, and I want to kill myself, you know, for, for not having, being prepared. I just, I don't know why I just do it. To, I, I must purposely do it. Got it. So there's something in there that says, you know, I'm going to make it even harder on myself. That, that's kind of funny, actually. Yeah, and and I always regret uh, doing it, but that's what I, that's my routine. So as a guy who does stuff you don't like doing, I'm, I'm so curious. The daily snapshot, so the daily life of Joe. Like, what do you do to wake up and then like eating and sleeping? Like, what's a routine? I get up around five ish. Uh, anything before five is just too early. Love warm water with lemon. Uh, I like to drink it really fast and, and just clean things out early in the morning. Immediately check some emails for about five, 10 minutes. And then uh, 300 burpees. I got to do my 300 burpees. Do some rope climbs. My kids start Kung Fu at 545. So I like to watch how, them. How old, are, how old are your kids? So the, uh, I have four children. The three that are doing Kung Fu in the mornings are uh, five, six, and eight. And then uh, they're done around seven. We breakfast together. They're off to school. Now, now what I'm about to describe the rest of the day is not the old Joe. This is the new <laughs> Joe that has to deal with Spartan Race, okay. um, which is a tiger by the tail. I then go into email and phone hell from, uh, let's call it 7.30 until 5.30, 7.30 a.m., 5.30 p.m., and then, um, and then the kids do their second hour of uh, kung fu and wrestling, and I like to be, I like to do that with them. And then I do my uh, second tranche of email and phone hell. And then, um, 
and then I'm done. And I go to I eat, I eat dinner and go to bed. And you go to bed around what time? I'm in bed, I would say, by the latest 10. Okay, so 10 to 5. So you sleep about seven hours a night. About seven hours. All right, cool. Yeah. And then you say your kids are doing a couple hours of, of Kung Fu. You, you have a teacher come in, or are you teaching them, or how does that work? So we, um, we got really lucky. We found this uh, Chinese guy who uh, is a master. He's uh, probably 30 years old, and we got him living on the farm with us. And, <laughs> you, uh, you are lucky, man. That's awesome. <laughs> And then we've got this other, we've got a farm here, an actual farm with, yeah. with goats and, and vegetables and stuff and greenhouses. And uh, the kid that runs that, I say kid, he's, he's 25. He was a wrestler. He was like the, in his weight class, fourth best wrestler in Massachusetts. So he comes in on the night, the night session of Kung Fu and does uh, wrestling with them as well. And the reason I'm big on the wrestling, you want to hear a great wrestling story? Yeah. This is unbelievable. So, um... So as my kids were developing a couple of years ago, when I got into the Kung Fu, I started telling everybody I knew about how my kids were badass and they were doing this Kung Fu. So everybody has their return stories with martial arts and MMA and so forth. And because Spartan Race has grown so much and has a partnership with many MMA affiliations and has a partnership with SOCOM, uh, I, would, I would find out that actually American wrestling is what they look for in the MMA. Those guys are actually the toughest ones to beat. I found out that in SOCOM and Special Forces, they want wrestlers, more so than swimmers, more so than water polo players. They want wrestlers. And so I started to really get excited about this American wrestling thing, which I have no experience with. And then um, this hedge fund guy that I was having dinner with said to me, hey, Joe, I got the greatest American wrestling story ever. He said, I grew up next to two brothers whose dad was an ex-Green Beret. Every night after dinner, uh, the dad would put them down the basement. Now, they did the normal wrestling practice, all their normal stuff during the day. Every night after dinner, one hour in the basement, blindfolded, lights out, wrestling. Oh, my it God. It got so crazy. got so crazy that the mother wanted to divorce the dad, the Green Beret. The, the, the uh, neighborhood was calling social services. Uh, <laughs> It got crazy, right? So um, fast forward, the kids get to the Olympic level, but they don't medal. One of the brothers becomes a coach at Stanford. He's teaching wrestling. At Stanford, he allows neighborhood kids to mix it up with the um, students, just to, to, just to mix things up. One of the neighborhood kids had been coming in for about a month, and he says to the coach, who is one of the two brothers that spent 10 years in the basement blindfolded, uh, coach, do you mind if I sleep on the mat tonight because I got locked out of my apartment? Coach says, don't be ridiculous, stay in my apartment. The, the neighborhood kid sleeps in the apartment. Uh, 2 a.m., the coach wakes up to his door opening. This guy apparently had been following around for months, the coach. Just a freak situation, has a gun, and is going to kill the coach. Wow. He strips him down to his underwear. He wow. zip ties him. This is a true story. Zip ties him to a chair, hands behind his back feet are zip tied to the chair. Um, he's down to his underwear, puts a pillowcase over his head and duct tapes his head, shuts the lights and has a gun and is about to kill him. Well, of all the people in the world that a perpetrator <laughs> has found, he found the guy that trained for 10 years in the basement blindfolded. This guy, this, this wrestling coach, headbutts him and proceeds to beat the crap out of the, the perpetrator, pins him on the ground while tied to a chair blindfolded, Calls 911 from behind his back. You got to interview him on your show. Oh my calls God. 911 from behind his back. They break down the door, the police. 
They come in, they can't believe what they find because he's still tied to the chair and blindfolded. <laughs> and, um, and they call the dad, the Green Beret, and they said, we got to tell you, we've been to car accidents, motorcycle accidents. We've never seen anybody beaten as bad as what your son did while tied to a chair and blindfolded. So my wife and I flew out to California to meet him. His name's Jay Jackson. He's the sweetest guy. He's unbelievable. He works with Spartan now. And, um, and so my kids do wrestling now every night with the Kung Fu because I'm not messing around. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I would love an, introduce, an introduction to Jay. He, he sound, what yeah. an amazing story. I, I'll connect you with Jay. It's unbelievable. The guy's unbelievable. Wow. I, I can't imagine. Um, I, I did this. In fact, something that really pushed my limits. I, I did the Urban Escape and Evasion course a, a few years ago where they, the final exam after like two days of training with bounty hunters and all, they hood you and tape the hood around you and uh, handcuff you and kidnap you in the back of a van and you have to escape and you're like doing missions with bounty hunters looking for you. If they find you, they, they handcuff you even more uncomfortably and drop you further off outside of town with no wallet, no phone, no nothing. And you're like, you know, what do I do? There's more bounty hunters coming for me. And man, that, you know, you learn something about your nervous system when you do stuff like that. But here's a guy who was actually really zip tied, you know, without you know, the ability to cry uncle. And uh, man, he, he executed. Oh, so yeah, I, I got to talk to him. Life and death situation yeah. with the lights out and blindfolded and zip tied to a chair. That's like Navy SEAL, you know, SEER school kind of stuff. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show. And, and man, what a fascinating story. There's a question, and I'm dying to know your answer here. A question I've asked everyone who's been on the show. And what are your top three recommendations uh, for people who want to kick more ass? It doesn't have to be any one thing you've done, any one Spartan, whatever. Just your entire wisdom, top three things. So, so can, I, can I plug the book a little bit by saying oh, it's in the book? Hell yeah. We're going to plug the book at the end anyway with the title and the URL. And we'll put links to your book in here and all. So definitely, it's in the book. So Because had, I've had, you know... 30 years to think about this and because I've been trying to do it for myself. And, and the book really tries to boil down what is it that makes you successful, whether success means finishing a 100-mile run, success means your business, success means making yourself tougher, which is probably required just to be successful. Um, and it's one commitment. you got to commit publicly, like I talked about before, when, when I trick my ego. Yep. And um, got to tell everybody you know you're doing it, whether it's uh, wrestling in the basement blindfolded, going to the two-day urban assault school. I'm doing this, right? And so now you're on the hook. Um, you've got to delay gratification. You know the cookie test, the marshmallow test they did in the 60s on kids. Oh, yeah. Um, right? So you, you can't hit the snooze button in the morning. You can't have that extra glass of wine at night. You've got to learn to delay gratification. I've been an expert at this uh, for most of my life. And um, I bet you find most of the people you interview – or, and even the people listening, um, the executives are probably really good at delaying gratification. You've got to change your frame of reference, even if you've got to trick yourself. Like, none of us have grown up in Siberia. We don't eat rocks for dinner, but you can trick yourself. In the middle of 300 burpees, which actually suck in the morning, I tell myself, well, maybe I'll do 3,000. And just by doing that, 300 becomes easier, right? I, I, when I did my first marathon, it intrigued me that I collapsed at 26.2 miles. It just blew me away that I didn't collapse at 25, I didn't collapse at 29, I collapsed at 26.2. So I realized right then in that moment, 
that I have to continue to tell myself, I'm not running 100 miles, I'm running 200 miles, even though I'm only running 100. 100 becomes easy, <laughs> just because my frame of reference. <laughs> All right, I love that. So, so and, then, and then the final thing is, is this upside-downside decision-making, which I touched on a little bit regarding my feet in the middle of a marathon. Every single little decision matters. It makes you um, more likely to succeed. It makes you tougher. If you think through uh, the simplest, most benign uh, decisions, uh, for example, uh, does it really matter if I stay in bed an extra 10 minutes? Does it really matter if I have a glass of wine at night? Does it matter if we stay up and watch TV with the kids? Yeah, it matters because I'm going to give you an extreme example of what I mean. This is extreme. This has nothing to do with me. I'm just giving an example here. You stay up late with your wife. You watch TV till 2 in the morning. You drink a whole bottle of wine, Right bad decision. You wake up late in the morning. Kids are screaming. You now fight with your wife in the morning because everything's screwed up. The kids missed the bus. She's late for work. <clears throat> you decide that afternoon you're not going home because you fought with your wife in the morning. You decide to go out with the buddies to a bar instead. You run into a six-foot beautiful woman. Maybe you kiss her. Who knows what happens? Before you know it, you're divorced, all because you stayed up. I mean, this is an extreme example, but it shows that domino effect of how these little decisions, just like the blister or the hot spot on the foot, could, um, you know, here's another great one. This is a great one that, that your audience will probably enjoy more. Uh, the, the, an astronaut, right, the dials uh, turn a little too much to the right, like a centimeter too much to the right. No big deal, except you end up on the wrong planet. Pretty big deal. <laughs> So, so very important. I'm, I'm really particular about all the tiny little decisions all day long. So, so you, you've driven a high state of awareness. So you're paying attention a lot. Yeah. And then sometimes even though your body's telling you something, you're like, screw your body and you just do something else anyway just because, all right, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Joe, where can people learn more about your book? Uh, when, it, when exactly, or where should they go to buy it? Give me URLs, give me Twitter handles, all the stuff you like people to know who'd like to learn more about this. All of this will be in the show notes as well, but just read it out for people driving so they can hit it on their iPhones. So SpartanUpTheBook.com explains everything. And, um, and the website for the races is Spartan.com, but the book is SpartanUpTheBook.com, and, uh, and that'll tell you everything. Joe, thanks a ton for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You, you were awesome. Um, you, you're the, probably the best interviewer I've ever been interviewed. I've been interviewed by a lot of people. You're good. Joe, thanks, man. That, that really means a lot. I, I, I really appreciate it. No problem. Have an awesome evening. Enjoy that cold weather in Vermont. I'm going to go outside. I'm feeling inspired to go sit in that only slightly slimy cold water lake right outside my window here. So have an awesome night. Take care. Bye-bye. If you haven't had a chance to check out our upgraded aging formula, it's worth a look. It's an amazing molecule you can take that helps you to mimic the effects of caloric restriction. You're probably already practicing bulletproof intermittent fasting. Adding something like upgraded aging formula helps your body to get the benefits of reducing calories without actually reducing calories. On top of that, upgraded aging formula helps your brain deal with large levels of glutamate, which is something that causes toxicity in the brain. So it helps a healthy brain stay healthy. It also has other very positive effects on maintaining healthy blood sugar levels 
and on other aging risk factors. This was the only supplement I've ever come across that very clearly impacts four different facets of aging. That's why I call it Upgraded Aging Formula, and it's available on UpgradedSelf.com. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.